And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Father God, as our psalm said today, for you, Lord, we wait. Our souls wait for you. In your word is our hope. So Lord, as we open your scriptures, as we listen to your word, we pray Uh, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us from this tragic story of David and Absalom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, over the course of the summer, we've been in a series in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel with the title of Becoming a People. And over the last three weeks, we've looked at the decline of David, the decline of the house of David, beginning with his adultery with Bathsheba and all of the unraveling that is a result of that choice that he made. And this story that we have before us is one of the more tragic costs of that sin. This story is a story of civil war. Absalom has raised up a rebellion against his father and we get some of the battle details that 20,000 men died that day. Notice that it said that David was at war with Israel. So there's this conflict with the very people that he is meant to lead because his son has risen up against him. So 20,000 people die. The forest devours more people than the swords of the army. There's a lot of military drama, but really the, the real drama of the story is the family drama. The thing that drives the story and all the emotion in the story is the relationship between David the father and Absalom the son. And that's where the story begins. David knows he needs to go out, send these people out to do battle, but he tells his generals, in my own words, go easy on the boy, right? Go easy on my boy, Absalom. The story doesn't necessarily go that way. So as we read this story, the first level that we have to read it on and understand it 
on and interact with it on is the level of the family drama. What's going on in the house of David? The division that's risen up within his own house. It's absolutely clear, Absalom is in open rebellion. He has set himself up as a rival king. And many of the people of Israel have followed after him. In fact, maybe the bulk of the people of Israel have followed after him. Because David in many ways has sort of stopped being king and his son Absalom has filled this, this power vacuum. So we have the conflict between David and his son, and then we have the conflict within David himself as both a king and a father. And those two roles are in open warfare with each other because what he must do as a king is put down the rebellion. But what he wants to do as a father is say, go easy on my boy. So all the drama in this passage is in the family. Notice there was really no mention of God. God's active and present, but his name is not mentioned. This, there's, this is a very human story that we have in front of us. So that's what's going on in David. He's in conflict with himself and he's in conflict with his son, trying to get back his kingdom. What do we know about Absalom? Apparently he was a real looker, a handsome guy, sexiest man in Israel for many years running. Um, one of the details about him is that he had long flowing locks of hair. Uh, I picture in my mind Chris Hemsworth as Thor when, when I think of Absalom. And what Absalom would do every year is he would give himself a haircut and then he would weigh his hair. That's weird. <laughs> Even in the ancient world, that's really odd, right? And, it's, and it's, compl- it's a completely detail of vanity. How much did my hair weigh this year? Oh, it's a good year. Many shekels worth of hair this year. And we'll see that the hair plays some detail uh, later on. So we know that he was uh, headstrong. We know that he was uh, attractive. We know that he was arrogant. And we know that he's a person who often takes matters into his own hands. When we're first introduced to Absalom uh, is another tragic moment in the house of David. David's oldest son, Amnon, has is burning with lust for his half-sister, Tamar, who's Absalom's full sister. And he schemes to take her for himself. And he, he rapes her. And David does nothing. He doesn't do anything. So Absalom schemes for two years to take revenge on his brother, Amnon. My dad's not gonna do anything. I'll do something. Absalom is the kind of person who takes matters into his own hands. He's exiled from Jerusalem, wants to come back. His dad won't see him. So... What does Absalom do? He sets David's general's fields on fire as a way to get his attention to say, I've got to talk to my dad. He takes matters into his own hands. Eventually, he gets himself a chariot and 50 soldiers to run with him. That means he's hinting at, I want to be in charge. The king is the one with the chariot. I want to be in charge. Later on, he sets himself up as a judge at the city gate in a position of a king. And the coup de grace is that he, in the sight of the whole city of Jerusalem, goes into the tent of his father's concubines and has his way with them, which is a way in the ancient world of saying, I'm in charge. Your harem is my harem. I'm the king now. That's what David has to deal with. He's in open rebellion. He's a rebel. He needs to be put down. But he's David's son. He's his son. Go easy on the boy, David says, after all of that. But that's not how it works out. 
The battle is heavy, it gets crazy. The forest is devouring people. You think of battles in the Civil War, we're in the fog war, it just got so crazy and people are sort of overtaken by the landscape itself because they're so confused. That's what's happening here. And apparently Absalom gets caught up in the fog of war himself and he's riding on the mule and his blessed hair comes back to bite him because his head gets caught in a tree. And we don't know exactly how this happened or exactly how it works, but this moment when he is caught in a tree and he's suspended between heaven and earth, it's a, pr- it's a pregnant moment. There's a lot of symbolism going on. First of all, the very symbol of his arrogance is the thing that trips him up, has the, the quality of a tragic hero in a, in a lot of ways, a tragic figure. The mule that he's riding on, the mule is the royal animal. We think of horses, but in Israel it was mules. He's dethroned by his mule. And then he's on a tree. He's hung by a tree. And the, the law, Deuteronomy says, those who are hung on a tree are cursed. It's clear that Absalom is in open rebellion, he is meeting his just fate. And yet, he's still David's son. He's still David's boy. Go easy on the boy. How is it with the boy, Absalom? So that's the moment that we return to David in our reading today. And David's waiting. He's waiting. He's looking for a messenger to come. This wasn't in the verses that we had before us, but he sees one runner coming and he says, oh, one runner, That's, that means it's good news. But if you're the king and you're the father of the person in rebellion, what exactly is good news in this scenario? That we won the battle and what is David hoping for? And that conflict comes again and this messenger, the Cushite comes and he says, I've got great news. All your enemies have been defeated. 20,000 people have died, all the battle details, but David zooms in directly to, and how is it? How is it with the young man, Absalom? And he says, may all of your enemies be struck down as that young man was. Probably not the thing that David wanted to hear in that moment, certainly not the thing he wanted to hear. And we hear these words that have echoed throughout history, this heart-rending lament Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That conflict comes out. What had to be done because he was a king breaks his heart as a father. Maybe you felt something like that in your life. Maybe two duties that you've had have come into conflict with each other and you had to choose one over the other and it hurt a lot to choose one over the other. Maybe as a parent, you felt something like this to a child. Maybe as a child, you've experienced something like this from a parent. And who of us who are parents doesn't resonate on some level with that statement, would I have died instead of you, that we would put ourselves in the way of pain if it meant that our children didn't have to experience pain, no matter what it is that they've done. The writer Frederick Buechner captures the drama of this moment when he writes, if David could have done the boys dying for him, he would have done it. If he could have paid the price for the boys' betrayal of him, he would have paid it. If he could have given his life to make the boy alive again, he would have given it. 
But even a king can't do things like that. As later history was to prove, it takes the king himself. Even a king can't do things like that. As later history was to prove, it takes the king himself. So first of all, we read this story as a family drama, but that's not the only thing that's going on in this story. There's all the promises that God has made to David. All of that's in play too. And I wanna draw our attention back again to two things that Nathan the prophet told David. Two words from God, both absolutely true, but both seemingly in conflict with each other. The first promise in 2 Samuel 7, David wants to build a temple. I wanna build a house for the Lord. The Lord through the prophet Nathan says, no, you're not gonna build a house for me. I'm gonna build a house for you. I will build your house. It's a promise of his dynasty. It's a promise that his sons will be on his throne forever. His sons, like this joker Absalom, that guy. People like him, that's how God's going to fulfill his promise. That's one of the promises. The promise of hesed, the promise of unfailing covenant love. I will build your house. But after the downfall with David and Bathsheba, after the conspiracy to kill Uriah, after all that David did in that moment, Nathan comes again and confronts David and says what? You're not gonna die. The Lord has put away your sin, but this is what's gonna happen. The sword will never depart from your house. The sword will never depart from your house. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Your son, Absalom. There are many things that happen between here and Solomon that are fulfillment of that word. The language of house is used in both promises. I will build your house. Your house will be the place of conflict. Much of the drama of the rest of the Old Testament is between these two prophecies. God's unfailing love, his promise of covenant grace, that he will be faithful to his people, and also that they, Israel will bear the consequences of their choices, bear the consequences of their false worship. There's a push and a pull, there's a give and a take. Just as a side note, when you read the prophetic literature, when you read Isaiah, when you read Jeremiah, these two things are pushing and pulling each other against it themselves all the time. So you can move from one chapter to the other and almost experience whiplash because it's like judgment, judgment, judgment. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I want to gather you. I want to love you. I'm going to save the nations through you. Um, sometimes we can just feel so disoriented by that. And that's the right thing to feel because in many ways, the Old Testament is a, is a story in search of an ending there's a promise that within the Old Testament itself is not fulfilled. So we have in this story, the push and the pull that's in play for the rest of the Old Testament. And we have hints of Israel's later trials in this story. In this story, David is exiled from Jerusalem. His son kicks him out of the palace. God's people go into exile. There's a picture of exile in this story. There's a picture of the more permanent division that will happen between Judah and Israel under David's grandson, Rehoboam, the civil war that will be created. And then there, of course, is the continual failure of the line of David to properly lead God's people. <laughs> the very people that are promised to reign on the throne forever. But that is what the Lord promises. He says, 
it's gonna be your son. It's gonna be one of your descendants. He's going to sit on the throne. We have a hint of that fulfillment. We have a hint of that grace with Solomon. Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, whose name means peace, whose other name, Jedidiah, means beloved of the Lord. He's gonna be the next king. He's gonna build the temple. There's a hint, there's a picture of what it could be like with David's true son reigning in some sort of golden age, and yet Solomon falls himself. So we see in this story the reality of the division. We see the reality of the sword not departing from the house of David. So there's all the human drama, my son, my son Absalom, but there's all this divine drama going on too because God is going to fulfill his word. So we have to step back and forget that we know the answer. We have to forget that we know the answer to the riddle. Riddles are really hard if you don't know the answer. But once you know the answer, you're like, oh yeah. Like, well, the mom is the doctor or whatever, you know, do you know that riddle? Um, once you know the answer, a riddle is easy. But when you, when you don't know the answer to the riddle, a riddle is really hard. And the Old Testament leaves us with a riddle. How can both these things be true? That the, ha- the sword will never depart from the house of David and I will raise up one who will reign forever. How can that be true? So, we're left with that question. We're left with the question of how in the world will God fulfill his promise? We're left with the question of how does this cycle stop of the sword of division striking down person after person, creating division, David's line continually falling into sin. I wanna draw attention to a decisive moment in the life of Jesus. On the night of the last supper, the night that he was betrayed and given over to death, Jesus is walking in the garden and the soldiers come to take him and they draw their swords. And Peter, who is like Absalom in some ways, a guy that takes matters into his own hands, draws a sword as well. And hear these words anew, these familiar words from Jesus. Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. David's true son has to put away the sword for the division to stop. And more than that, David's son has to take the sword upon himself. It's not that Jesus doesn't just wield, he chooses not to wield the sword. It's that in many ways he falls on the sword. He is the son of peace. He's the true Solomon. He's the true beloved of the Lord. And here again, these words from Frederick Buechner, if he could have done the boys dying for him, he would have done it. If he could have paid the price of the boys' betrayal for him, he would have paid it. If he could have given his life to make the boy alive again, he would have given it. But even a king can't do things like that. It takes the king himself. It takes the true son of David falling on his sword to break the cycle of violence, to make both the words of God true, that a true descendant of David will sit on the throne and one who will refuse the sword of division, who will take that sword upon himself. I draw attention to that moment because we've been in this series for 10 weeks and we've been asking the question, what does it mean to be a people? And we've had lots of different answers to that question. And beginning in the story, 
To be a people of God means that we learn to wait on the Lord like Hannah, waiting for a son. To be a people means that we learn to listen and obey the word of the Lord like Samuel, who said, speak Lord for your servant is listening. We learn through the anointing of the kings that the people of God are those who look on the heart instead of on appearances. We learn that we have to learn to wait like David for the Lord to establish us, that we can't take matters into our own hands. We see that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, that, the, that God will strike down our enemies like David struck down Goliath. We see that as David danced before the ark of the Lord, that right worship is the true end of the human heart, that that's what delights us, that that's what makes us fully human. And in the stories of David Bathsheba and the undoing of David's house, we see that when we are confronted by sin to be a people means that we repent. But more than all of that, all of that's true, but more than all of that, to be a people means that we are gathered under the sign of the cross. There is one who does his dying for us. There is one who pays the price for our betrayal. There is one who gives his life so that we might have life again. That's why we're constituted as a people. That's why St. Bartholomew's exists, is to be gathered in the name of Jesus and to go proclaim his good news to the world. We are people constituted by the cross. We are people called into the world to bear that cross to be people who like Jesus refuse the sword. We're not gonna be like that. We're gonna love our enemies. We're gonna bless those who persecute us. We're gonna turn the other cheek. We're gonna do all the things that David himself who couldn't do. He was a man of blood, but his true son was not. He refused the sword. That's what it means for us to be people of the cross. And if we're going to continue to seek God as a people, as St. Bartholomew's, we can't forget the cross. We can't forget that it's by his blood that he's ransomed us, that he's saved us, that he's washed us, that he's given us new life. It's by his resurrection that there's the possibility that God can bring something out of nothing, that he can bring life out of death, that he can bring light into darkness. If we don't have that, then we're just a club. You know, we, and we sing some songs and we have a good time. If that's not real, then we're kind of kidding ourselves. If it's not real that Jesus can transform, if it's, if it's not real that he can bring life into death, uh, then like Paul said, we are to be pitied above all people. Not just that we would be wrong, but we would be pitiable because we would be gathering for no real reason. But there is one who pays the price for us there is one who does our dying for us and there is one who raises us up into new life. And that's what makes us a people. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that even in the midst of human dramas, in the midst of conflict within family, you are at work. You're bringing about the fulfillment of your promises. And we see that in your son. And we, even as your people, wait for you to come again to fulfill even more your word. So Lord, we pray that we would be people of the cross, people who remember 
that we have been called by you, that we are constituted by you, and that we are sent by you into the world to proclaim that good news. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the true son of David, the son of God. Amen.